Our reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. If you've got your Bibles open, please keep them open. We're going to be referring to that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Okay, so we are in this series in uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter of the Apostle Paul um, to a church that he planted, a church that's in Greece. And in this letter, we are in a section, we read from the whole of chapter 4, this section where Paul is giving instructions to the Thessalonians on how they should conduct their lives, how they should live. And if you kind of wanted to sum it up under one phrase, you could see it from verse 1 of chapter 4, which is that Paul calls them to live a life which is pleasing to God. So Paul can think, you know, I'll have have done my job well if these guys live in a way that pleases God. And in chapter 4, he covers a number of topics. So um, in the beginning part of the chapter, as was read, he covers the area of sexuality and how we can be holy um, with our sex lives. Next week's passage um, will cover uh, the idea of grief but also how we should live and grieve in light of Jesus' coming, his second coming. So you've kind of got two edgy issues there, sex and the second coming. But between the two, we have quite an ordinary topic, which we'll be looking at today in verses 9 and to 12, which is just the simple, ordinary idea of loving each other and our daily work. And those two things are linked in Paul's thought. So we're going to see how, as Grace Church, we can be increasingly loving each other, even as we consider our vocations and our work. Now, I think most of us understand at some level that love is not just a feeling. Okay? Now, I wouldn't want to say it's less than a feeling, but it is certainly more than a feeling. Now, if someone told you that they loved you, but then they did nothing practical to show that in any way, then you might have good reason to doubt that love. It's more than words or feelings, isn't it? Yesterday, I was speaking to a friend who is engaged, 
And she told me that her fiance only said I love you for the first time when he proposed. That was the first time he said I love you. Now, some of you might consider that unusual. Some of you might think, yeah, that wouldn't work for me. He'd need to say it a little bit earlier than that. But my friend was happy with that. It worked well for her. She didn't have any concern about the relationship. And presumably, that's because, even though he may not have said it with his mouth, um, he communicated his love through his actions in a, way, in a way that made my friend know that she was loved, even if it took a while for him to say the actual words. You see, love is practical, isn't it? Yeah, and whether that's romantic love or the sort of love between friends and family, what does love do? It rolls its sleeves up. It gets its hands dirty. It's willing to serve the other person. It's practical. And in this passage, we're going to see how we as Grace Church can learn to be better lovers in general. And with a particular emphasis on how that affects our work. And we're going to learn something crucial about what love is and what it does along the way. So today we're going to look at the what, the how, and the why. So firstly, looking back down um, at our passage, we're going to look at the what that Paul says to the Thessalonians. And the what is this, love each other more. Verses 9 to 10. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Paul wants to talk about Christian love with this church. And it's clear from the outset that the Thessalonians are no strangers to love and loving each other. Paul says, in one sense, we don't really need to write to you because you're already doing it. You're already a loving church. And it's clear that they haven't limited their love just to the bounds of their own community. They've also loved the churches in Macedonia, which was another country. We don't know how they were doing that, probably through financial support. So these were a loving people. They were a loving church. We can assume that if you'd walked through the doors of Grace Church Thessalonica, you wouldn't have seen a group of self-absorbed, immature people. They had love, and that would have been obvious and evident to those who visited them. Given that then, isn't it interesting what Paul says? He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. They may be a loving church, but they shouldn't rest on their laurels. They shouldn't slow down their love or coast at their current level. They are to keep going. They are to find new ways to be loving. And Paul urges them to press forward in being more loving. There's something quite parental about this, I think. You know, Paul has already described himself as being like a father and a mother to this church. And like many parents, he wants his children to reach their potential, to continually um, mature, to keep going. And so he lovingly pushes and presses them forward in their love. Not like a slave driver, uh, not like the sort of parent who can never be happy unless their child is perfect, but out of love for them and out of a desire to see them flourish and reach their potential, Paul urges them to keep going in their love. Come on, guys, it's like he's saying. Let's keep going. Don't take your foot off the gas. And this tells us something really significant about the Christian life. 
there is always room to grow in our love for each other. There's always room to grow. We've never mastered it. And so we should never rest on our laurels. We should never be satisfied with where we're at in terms of our love for each other. We should keep pressing forward. Growth in the Christian life has been compared to playing a video game. So in lots of classic video games, you have different levels. You might start at level one, which is the easiest level, and then it might end at level 50. And each level increases in difficulty and complexity. And growing in love can be a little bit like that. You know, showing love at level one, that could be quite basic and obvious. But as you progress, level two, level five, level 10, level 20, to, to love in that way, it requires more thought. It can be more challenging. It might demand more of us. So let's think of an example. Think of the example of how do we love, for, love someone in the church who is struggling right now? Well, level one love might simply be that you remember them. You actually think about them. You pray for them when they come to mind. Level two love might not just be that you pray for them, but you tell them that you're going to pray for them. Or even better, you pray with them on the spot when you're with them. A later level of love might mean that you follow up with them later. You keep checking in, seeing how they're doing. Another level might be that you offer support to them in some way. And then a level beyond that might mean not that you just offer support in general, but you think of something specific that you can offer them so the burden is not on them to kind of come up with ways in which you can help them. Do you see what I mean? There are always ways to increase in love. Lots of levels. And you could use that kind of illustration for various ways of loving others, welcoming new people at church, maintaining a friendship or a relationship with someone who's close to you. There are all sorts of ways we can press further in our love for each, other's, for each other. And as we progress through those levels, what do we do? We learn to be more thoughtful. We learn to be more sacrificial. We learn to be more generous as we progress. Now, this can seem a little bit demotivating. If you see someone at church who you think is like a level 37 lover, and you perceive yourself to maybe be in the teens, it could be a little bit demotivating. You might think, oh, what's the point? You know, they're, they're way ahead of me, and that's just completely beyond me. But we shouldn't give up if that's the case. Rather, you could think, well, what's, what's the next step for me? What's the next incremental change. You know, Christian growth is slow, but we're guaranteed power because God gives us his Holy Spirit who lives in us and gives us the power to change. We can expect to see growth in our lives. And as anyone who's played a video game knows, you don't get to the higher levels without having died a few times. We often fail, but we progress as we keep trying with God's help. So the point is this, we don't coast, okay? We don't pat ourselves on the back if we have a perception that we're quite loving. We celebrate God's work in our lives, but we keep pushing forward. Namdi said a few weeks ago in his sermon that he felt that Grace Church is a loving church, and I agree with him. I think we are in many ways. But let's not pat ourselves on the back. Let's keep going. Let's keep finding new ways to love each other. So that's the what. 
love each other more. So secondly, let's look at the how. How do we do this? Now, there are lots of ways that we can put our love into practice. But for the Thessalonians, Paul zooms in on one particular way, which might not seem obvious to us, but it's this. Live quietly and work diligently. Live quietly and work diligently. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Now, what is behind a statement like that? It's not immediately obvious, so what we have to do is we kind of have to go Sherlock Holmes on the text. We get our magnifying glass out, and we try and find out what's going on that would lead Paul to make a statement like this. And if we do our investigative work, we find out, or we can discern, that the Thessalonian church had a bit of a problem with people who wouldn't work. So in chapter 5, verse 14 of the page, um, Paul says, warn those who are idle. And in the second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul talks about those who are not willing to work and who walk in idleness. So in short, behind this statement that Paul makes in chapter 4, lies the reality that there were some people in the church who essentially wouldn't get a job. And that seems to be the backdrop of this section. Now, to be clear, the issue here isn't laziness. Uh, it's, no, it is laziness, rather. It's not um, an issue with people's weakness. So Paul isn't talking about those who couldn't work. He's not talking about those who have been struggling to find work and because of various difficulties, they can't find employment. That's not who he's talking about. He's referring to people who can work, but don't. Now, why were there people in the church who weren't working? This seems to be a particular Thessalonian thing. It's not really referred to much in other letters in the New Testament. And we don't know, to be honest. Some have speculated that the Thessalonians had a, a big um, fixation on Jesus' second coming. They thought that Jesus was going to return imminently. And so if he's going to return imminently, what's the point in getting a job? Now, maybe that was the case, maybe not, we're not sure. But either way, clearly, it was a problem. And what does Paul say to such people? He says that they should lead a quiet life and mind their own business. Now, it seems that some of these people who weren't working were instead making a nuisance of themselves. Again, if we look at 2 Thessalonians, it talks about these people not being busy at work, but being busy bodies. That is, they were living a life that was disruptive to other people. Now, a busybody is it's the sort of person who likes to interfere in other people's affairs where it's not helpful or wanted. They like to give advice when it's not been asked for, kind of spout their opinions and tell others what to do in a way which is unhelpful. And I guess, you know, when you're not working, you need to find something to do. And so being a busybody might be a temptation. So Paul tells such people that they should live quietly, that is, they shouldn't disrupt other people. They shouldn't be a meddler. They should mind their own business. And most clearly, they should work with their hands. That is, they should get a job. Now, the main point here is that God has a very high view of work. Christians are expected and indeed commanded to work. 
Now, it goes without saying that unpaid work, such as raising children, is just as worthy and valued in the Bible as paid, employed work. Although, do know that in this passage, Paul will be referring to paid work specifically for reasons that we'll come back to later. But there's something refreshing about the way the Bible dignifies different kinds of work. So look at the phrase that Paul uses, live quietly, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Now, one can read that as a kind of catch-all term for any type of employment or work, and that, that would be legitimate. For the, but for the first readers of this letter, the idea of working with your hands would conjure up images of manual labor. Manual labor. So Paul says, get a job, do manual labor. So for the Bible, it's not just the fancy, highly paid jobs that are worthy. Manual, hands-on work is given as much dignity as any other job. And I find that interesting because I find that I hear people talk about what they are looking for in a job when they're they're looking for a career um, or for new employment. And I'll sometimes hear statements like, I want a job where I can make a difference. I want a job where I can have impact. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. But it does make me wonder, how do we define impact? And what is the order of jobs that have the most impact? What's our hierarchy there? I suspect that certain types of jobs are higher up the list than others. We, in our culture, I think, tend to esteem um, jobs like being a teacher or being a doctor. In the church, we might esteem um, being a paid ministry worker. That might be perceived to be at the top of the ladder. And often, these are the sorts of jobs which require a university education, normally. But what does that say about those who don't work those kinds of jobs? I recently listened to Premier Christian Radio, um, and there's a show on there called Unbelievable. A few of you I know will have listened to Unbelievable. It's a debate show. Often they have Christians and non-Christians on to debate uh, the existence of God or other such questions. It's a really interesting show. I'd recommend it. Um, What happens is, though, at the end of every episode... The host, Justin Briley, reads email feedback from listeners who are commenting on previous episodes. The other day, I was listening to an episode, and one listener emailed in, and he'd been slightly offended. On a previous episode, a guest had been on the show, and he'd said that growing up, he was told that he wouldn't amount to anything and would probably end up working with his hands, as if that was a bad thing. And the listener said, well, I've been a carpenter for 22 years, and I feel like I've become quite a decent one. It's interesting, sometimes our culture can devalue or patronize people who work in certain vocations, or say, who work with their hands. But the Bible isn't like that at all. What matters is that we work. We use the gifts and we use the talents that God has given us in the best way we can. And that might mean emptying bins, that might mean serving in parliament, or anything in between. But there is dignity to work, whatever it is. And notice too, just how ordinary this phrase sounds. Live quietly, mind your own business. 
work with your hands. It's not particularly glamorous, is it? But that's probably quite helpful because for many of us, our work can feel a bit unglamorous, a bit dull at times, unsensational. That can be particularly the case in some jobs post-COVID, endless Zoom meetings, um, working at home, meaning less interaction with colleagues. And that's on top of the normal difficulties that come with work and pressures, targets and deadlines and tricky working relationships. Work isn't always the dream that we wish it was. And if that's the case for you, please be assured it doesn't mean that you have failed. And it doesn't mean that you're less spiritual or godly because you don't have a job that you feel is making the impact it should. Our work is valuable to God, whether it feels fulfilling or not. What matters is that we work and that we are faithful at it. We live quietly. We're not disruptive to others. We get on at being as faithful as we can in our jobs. And this is a vital part of the Christian life, Paul says. So we live quietly and work diligently. What's the how? But why is this particularly loving? Why is it loving to just get a regular job and live quietly and crack on with your life, minding your own business? Well, there are two reasons why working is particularly loving, and the passage gives us them. The first is this. It commends Jesus to the world. It commends Jesus to the world. So look down at verse 12. The Thessalonians are to work so that, verse 12, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. There is a real sense in which we should care about what people outside the church think about us. That's not an absolute principle. Obviously, we live primarily for the approval of Jesus, not the approval of others. Nevertheless, when the world looks at us as Christians, it really matters what they see. Do they see diligent or lazy people? Do we apply ourselves to our work? Do we slack off? Are we responsible? Because here's the thing. What people think of Jesus will be directly linked to what people think of us. You know, to some of our neighbors and colleagues and friends, we are the only Christian that they will know. We will be the only point of reference they have to the gospel. And so the way we live will factor in on what they think of Christianity and what they think of Jesus. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a scary thought. And yet, as Christians, we represent Christ to the world. We are his ambassadors. We represent him. And so that comes with responsibility. There's a story about the great ancient world general Alexander the Great. And apparently once he came across one of his soldiers who was looking in a bit of a state, he was disheveled, um, he dressed sloppily, he stank of alcohol because he'd been out the night before. And this soldier was asked his name, to which he replied, my name's Alexander, sir. So it was Alexander chatting to Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, soldier, either change your name or change your behavior. Change your name or change your behavior. What's happened there? This disheveled soldier has not represented his general well. 
or other Alexanders well. And in the same way, we need to recognize and our link and identity with Jesus that we are responsible for how we mirror him to a watching world. Now, none of us do this perfectly. Gosh, I think back to when I was working in an office, um, and there are definitely ways I wish I could have been a better representative of Jesus. <laughs> so many ways. And I am really grateful that the Lord is merciful and that he is forgiving. Because none of us get this right. And there is grace for us when we mess up. But what Paul is saying here is pretty basic. An easy way, a low bar to be able to win the respect of outsiders is to work and work diligently. Apply yourself to the work you're doing. And so that way, when those outside the church see us, what they see is that we are people who take responsibility, who want to contribute to society, that we're not just a bunch of slackers. And this is an act of love to our neighbors and colleagues because it shows them something of what the Christian life is like and what life in Jesus does to a person. It commends the gospel to them. And as we try and speak the words of the gospel, that message will be backed up with how we live. The second reason, though, um, that working is an act of love is this. It eases burdens on other Christians. It eases burdens on Christians. So look at verse 12 again, right at the end. Paul says that the Thessalonians should live quietly and work hard so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So this is particularly how the Thessalonians are to be able to love one another, that is, in the church. Not being needlessly dependent. Not being needlessly dependent. And the issue here is financial dependence. Hence why Paul wants the Thessalonians to be able to work jobs. Now what seems to be happening in this church is that it was taking seriously its call to love one another. This meant that Christians were being generous, they were being hospitable, opening their homes, sharing their food and their time and their money. But what happened, though, was that these generous Christians were being exploited because they ended up being provided, providing for idle people who could actually provide for themselves but weren't doing so. So they were kind of sponging off others in the church. So the idle were living at the expense of their brothers and sisters and burdening them by being dependent on them, when they could have just as easily go and work. And this is not loving. It wasn't loving because it wasn't loving to those who were being generous and were sharing their resources because it was taking advantage of them. But it also wasn't loving to those who were genuinely in need and could have benefited from those resources that were being taken and allocated to people who didn't need them. So the loving thing to do for these people who were living at other people's expense, was to work and to provide for themselves and not be dependent on their brothers and sisters in the church. Now, if you've been paying attention to Thessalonians so far, you'll have seen that Paul is someone who's embodied this himself. He was a tent maker by trade, it says in the New Testament. And in chapter 2, he talks about how he worked to be self-dependent financially. So chapter 2, verse 9, says this, "'Surely you remember, brothers and sisters,' Our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. So Paul worked hard. He didn't want to be dependent 
on these people. As an act of love, he didn't want to burden them. And so this is another reason why work is good and loving. It enables us to be self-sufficient financially and not unnecessarily burden other people. And so in this way, though a nine-to-five might not feel particularly spiritual, in this sense, it is actually a profound act of love. Now, at this point, again, I want to reiterate, Paul is not referring to people who are served by others when they genuinely need help. Paul is challenging laziness. He's not challenging weakness. The church is there to serve each other and to look out for each other to care for each other's needs. And the truth is, for some of us, we may have the opposite problem. We don't ask for help when we need it. And there may be various reasons for that. Perhaps one of those reasons is that we are proud and we don't want to be seen to be needy. But there is no shame in receiving support, money, food, or accommodation when we need it. You know, even Jesus was supported by others. Luke 8 tells us that because of some industrious businesswomen, they were providing for his needs as he went about his ministry. So being needy is not a bad thing. And if you are in need, our church has a hardship fund um, that is accessible. And, And if you want information about that, you can come and chat to me or Pete or one of the other elders, and we can deal with that in a way that's discreet and confidential. And we want to be able to help you if you need help. There is no problem with helping those in need. That's what we're called to do as a church. But to take resources needlessly is not loving. But on the other hand, work is loving, and it enables us to actually have the joy and privilege of bearing other people's burdens. I'm going to put a link in the weekly news that goes out um, on a Monday morning to a video that is on the Gospel Patrons website. Um, It's an inspiring video about a doctor um, called Tom. I don't know if he's called Tom, but I'm going to call him Tom for the sake of this uh, story. Uh, And Tom and his brother partnered with Indian um, church leaders to help support church planting in India. And in the video, there's this talk about some of these remote villages in India where um, they're cut off from all sorts of the normal infrastructure um, and facilities and services. And yet, Coca-Cola has been able to get to these villages. Pepsi has reached these villages. But the name of Jesus hasn't. They're unreached. And in the video, Tom visits India, and he goes to a village where five years previously there had been no church, and yet people had come, shared the good news about the Lord Jesus, and people had come to faith. A church was started. Christian workers were able to help the material needs of those in the village as well, who were very, very poor. And you could just see how the Holy Spirit was doing wonderful things in this community. And Tom was amazed seeing this, and he wanted to contribute in some way, and he asked how. And these local church leaders said that they couldn't send church planters to other villages in India because they didn't have the funds. And so Tom asked, well, how much does it cost? How much do they need? And the answer was, to send a a church planter, a church worker to another village, it would cost 50 quid a month. 50 quid a month. And on the video, Tom says, 50 pounds a month. I mean, that's nothing. I could go out with a friend, both get a meal, both get a couple of drinks. That's 50 pounds right there. 
He lives in London. I'm not sure if he... He needs to go to Weatherspoons. It's a lot cheaper. Um, he says, a new pair of shoes, 50 pounds. A fancy phone contract, 50 pounds. And so he realized that at his disposal were resources because of his job and wealth that could be allocated to ease the burdens of these um, people over in India to help support missionaries and indigenous Indian workers to go and share the gospel with their countrymen. And so he was using his wages to, to support his people. And so his work meant, because he worked, he could um, relieve other people's burdens rather than being a burden himself. And that is one of the joys of work. It's an ability to provide resources so that we can bless others. How much better is it to be able to relieve others' burdens rather than be a needless burden ourselves? Now, of course, supporting world mission is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we can also do things closer to home, in our church family, in our hosting, in our hospitality, um, all sorts of creative ways to use the resources we have to bless others. So not being unnecessarily dependent frees us to be a blessing. And this refusal to burden other Christians it's not just a random command, okay? It's not just kind of out of sync, abstract, random in terms of the Christian life. Actually, this, this desire not to burden others goes to the very heart of the Christian faith. And we see that in the life of Jesus himself. You see, Christianity is all about burdens being lifted. One day, you and I will stand before a holy God and we will have to give an account for everything we have done, everything we have thought, everything we have said. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing will be forgotten. Every careless word, every hidden sin, every malicious attitude, every failure to honor God and others, it will be there and it will be judged fairly with the penalty that it deserves. Friends, let me tell you, unless the burden of our sins is lifted, they will crush us. Because if you're anything like me, you, you've done a lot that's wrong. But if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, you will never have to fear that day. You will never have to pay back that debt and you will never have to carry that burden anymore because the Lord Jesus has lifted that burden off of us if we trust him. He's taken it off our shoulders. So now we can lift up our heads. We can breathe again. Jesus has borne that burden by taking it on himself. He has paid our penalty through an agonizing, God-forsaken death on a cross. He has eased our burden, and there is nothing more loving than that. And so Jesus himself, the gospel itself, shows us that love does not burden others. On the contrary, it carries the burdens of others at its own cost to serve and love others. And so just as an aside, if you're someone who hasn't trusted in Jesus if you haven't had that sin, the weight of it taken off your shoulders, perhaps today's the day. 
Come to Christ. He offers himself to you. But for the rest of us, let us love more and more. Not just by words, but by bearing each other's burdens. And in so doing, we will reflect the love of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we can't even comprehend what it meant for you to carry our burdens on the cross. We don't even understand fully the depth of our own sin. As we grow in the Christian life, we understand more and more how sinful we are in in so many ways, and yet you have taken that burden from us. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, and we thank you that that's an expression of your love, a love that is willing to sacrifice in order to save and serve other people. And Lord, we pray that this would be a church where that sacrificial burden lifting would take place. Help us to use our resources um, to serve others and to ease their burdens out of love for you and out of love for our neighbor. Show us where we're not doing that, Lord. Help us to be a church where we increase in love more and more. Help us not to pat ourselves on the back, but to keep pushing forward with all the strength that your Holy Spirit gives us. In your name we pray. Amen.